Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. ...of our faith. And so I want to ask you uh, one more time to recite it with me. I want to, um, if, if you're so audacious, I'm not going to do this because I'm leading the thing, but close your eyes and see if you can recite it from memory, okay? Because we've done this every week. So Christian, let me ask you, what do you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we rest on your faithfulness Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. That through the power of your spirit, through the proclamation of your word, that you conform our hearts to the image of Jesus. That you set our affections upon that which is most glorious. That you help take our eyes off of the worries of this world and set our eyes on the one who is sovereign over all things. And so, Lord, we come to you today dependent that you will work through our hard and distracted hearts once again to show us the glory of what we are bound for. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. A little less than two months ago, uh, my wife and I and four children made a trip out to Yellowstone. And in preparation for this trip to Yellowstone, we bought an old pop-up camper. And in order to buy that old pop-up camper, we needed to get a more heavy-duty vehicle. And so we decided to purchase a Suburban. And I searched and searched and searched for the right Suburban right within our price range. And the one that I found actually was in eastern Minnesota. And so I drove to go get the Suburban in our old minivan, and I left our old minivan there because they weren't going to give me much money for it, and it was still in good condition. It just couldn't pull a pop-up camper. And so I left it there figuring on the way back to Yellowstone, we could pick it up and drive it home. And so we left shortly after that and drove out to Yellowstone uh, with our, our used Suburban and our, our used pop-up camper, and we get out there, and Yellowstone is amazing. If you ever have been there, if you've ever not been there, it is worth the trip. I mean, you see things that you'll see nowhere else in the world. You see steam coming from the sides of mountains. You see geysers. You see turquoise-colored hot 
pools of water. You see, you see buffalo right in front of you crossing the road. You see bears. You see elk. We even traveled down to the Grand Tetons. It was an amazing trip. We were all inspired throughout the whole thing. And yet, two days before we were scheduled to leave, our family all looked at each other and we said, you know what? We just want to go home. We just want to be at home. Even though Yellowstone was absolutely amazing, all of us were there saying, you know what, let's just go home. And so two days early, we started heading home and there was rain almost the entire trip. And so we decided to put on the four high on our Suburban. Now this is a, a, a public announcement to you all. You should not keep a car on four high for hundreds of miles. Evidently, uh, that's not something you should do. But anyways, we did that. And you'll find out why here in a second. And so we finally get over to Minnesota and we are on the western side of Minnesota and we are coming down the western side of Minnesota and tornado warnings start going off on our phones. And so Trish pulls up her phone and she's looking and sure enough, there are really bad storms really nearby. And so we drive for a little bit and it gets really bad and so we pull off and pull under an overpass for protection. When it gets a little bit better, we decide to get back onto the highway to head east across Minnesota to go pick up our minivan. And as we get back on the highway to head across Minnesota, the transmission starts to slip. We get up to around 30 miles an hour, and then all of a sudden the engine just revs. And so we're not sure what's going to happen because we're kind of in the middle of nowhere going across this backcountry road across Minnesota. Well, the, the, the transmission starts to catch a little bit. And so, so across Minnesota with a storm literally that we can see about 10 miles north of us traveling parallel to us, we're going 75 miles an hour, then 35 miles an hour, then 70 miles an hour, then 35 miles an hour, all the way across Minnesota. And so finally we get to the dealership where I bought the Suburban, where my minivan was being stored. And at this time, the rain is starting to pick up. And in our mind, we're thinking, okay, we're going to pick up our, we're all going to get in the minivan, we'll hook up the, the camper to the minivan, and we'll just drive home because we just, we just want to get home. Well, we pull up to the minivan, and it's raining, and as we pull up to the minivan, what we notice is that the rear tire is completely flat. And so I say, no worries, Trish, no worries. Grab the umbrella, uh, you can hold it up over me. I got some fix-a-flat in the back of this car. We'll just fill it up and get on our way. And so we are out there and she's holding up the umbrella and I put the fix-a-flat on and by this time it starts raining sideways and it is just pouring. And so I'm putting this fix-a-flat into the tire and I'm spraying it and nothing is happening. The tire is not changing at all. And so we're sitting there, and I'm spraying the fix-a-flat. The tire's not inflating. We are drenched wet. Trish is holding an umbrella, which is completely useless at this time. We are feeling completely defeated. And two thoughts go through my mind. The first is that I better be able to use this as a sermon illustration someday. <laughs> and the second is, man, I just want to be home. I just want to get home. And so we get back in the Suburban, again, drenched and defeated. And up to this point in time, I'm actually keeping my cool. I'm doing a pretty good job. But then a voice from the back of the car says, Dad, what are we having for dinner? I'm hungry. And I say, this is not a time to think about food. We're trying to survive the night. 
And so we get in the suburban and we decide to eke our way to town. We're in the middle of nowhere. And as we're eking our way back to town, the transmission's getting worse, which is okay because it is now raining so hard at this point in time that the traffic on the highway is going 10 miles an hour with flashers on because the rain is so bad. And as we're driving to get to a hotel, I am just thinking, all I want to do is get home. You know, why is it that we long for home? Whether we are in paradise like Yellowstone or in the middle of a torrential downpour, why is it that we want to get home? It's because home is a place of security. Home is a place of familiarity. Home is a place of peace. But in addition to that, our earthly home points to a heavenly home. In 2 Corinthians 5.8, the Apostle Paul says, Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. This life we live is full of sunny days and rainy days. It is full of happy memories and very, very, very sad memories. And whether you are on a happy day or a sad day, a sunny day or a stormy day, all of us long for home. If you would please open up to Revelations chapter 20. Uh, We're going to be starting in verse 11 and working through 21 verse 8. It's page 1040 in the Red Bible, which is a Bible in the seat in front of you. Um, It seems appropriate that we would end the Apostles' Creed with the very end of the story that is written in the Bible, the last few chapters of the book of the Bible. The book of Revelation was written by the Apostle John, not only to tell us how it's all going to end, but to encourage the church that he is writing to. You see, the church that John is writing to is going through some stormy times and is going to get worse. They're being persecuted uh, uh, relationally, financially, even physically for their faith in Jesus Christ. And so John is writing to them to encourage them to let them know who is going to win the day. And what is the home that they are destined for, for all eternity. So let's read together about this resurrected life that awaits those who trust in Christ. Revelations 20, verse 11 through 22 verse 9. Revelations 20, 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Then 
I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the springs of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, and spoke to me, saying, Come. I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Amen. Richard Baxter was a famous pastor who lived during the 17th century. And he was known because he had suffered chronically from kidney stones and from headaches, from bleeding, from toothaches, from swollen feet, from tumors, and from a myriad of other chronic ailments. And yet in the midst of his chronic pain, Baxter was an extremely fruitful evangelist, a faithful pastor, and a prolific writer. In his book, The Saint's Everlasting Rest, he tells what provided him endurance and motivation, even in the midst of such horrendous suffering. Baxter's secret to his ongoing fruitful labor is that he had committed himself every day to meditate on heaven for at least half an hour. Wouldn't that be a great commitment to make? Wouldn't that be the most wonderful half an hour of your day? Well, today we get that half an hour. It is forced upon you because we are going to meditate on heaven for at least a half an hour here. And so right now, you may be going through a raging storm physically, relationally, financially. Or maybe life is good and you have no complaints, but you're sitting there going, why am I still not satisfied in my soul? I know the Lord, I know his goodness, I know his grace, but something is missing. C.S. Lewis puts it this way, he says, if we find ourselves with the desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. That other world is what the Apostle Paul calls home. It is the resurrected life. And there our souls will be fully satisfied at all time 
forever and for always. Today, we have the wonderful blessing of, of eavesdropping on eternity. To stand on our tiptoes and to look over the fence on our future home. So that as we live our lives in this world, we can set our hearts on the joy of the home that is yet to come in our resurrected life. And so let's look over the fence at eternity, at our future home, to gaze upon it, to rejoice in it together. The first thing about this new home, this resurrected life that I want to point out is the newness of resurrected life. Look at verse 5 with me. It says, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Jesus is saying to the apostle John, I am making all things new right now. We live in a time that theologians call the already and not yet. Christ has already come to initiate his kingdom of newness, but he has not yet come back to finalize that kingdom of newness. Through Christ's first coming, we have become a new people called the church. He has given us new life and that in Christ we are born again and he has given us a new heart filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus is reversing the curse and all the devastating effects of the fall. He is renewing our marriages, our longings, our world. And yet while Christ has already started making all things new, we know that he is not yet finished. There are still many unnew, broken things in this world. But the time is coming where he will complete his project of newness, where he will make all things new again. Verse 6, he speaks of this time. Says, and he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. A time is coming where Christ will make all things new, where Satan and sin will no longer have their fingerprints on our life and on our world. A day when Christ's newness of all of creation will be completed. Now what, what will he make new on that day? Well, the simple answer is everything. But there are two things in particular that I want to point out as part of this. The first is the newness of creation in resurrected life. Look at 21 verse 1. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and first earth had passed away. You know, when we think of heaven, it can often be very confusing because we view heaven as kind of just floating around in the sky. But in this verse right here, what Paul is talking about by new heavens, is he's saying a new, a, new, a new sky, a new solar system, a new universe, and a new earth. He's talking about the world beneath our feet. And he's saying there will be a new heavens and a new earth. Now, some theologians think that Jesus will actually do away with this earth and with all of the universe here and just bring an entirely new one. But most theologians believe that he's actually going to renew this earth and to renew this creation, renew the universe. An example of this in the Bible are in the days of Noah in which God, quote, destroys the world. And yet by destroying the world, what he's doing is he is renewing the world. 
He is recreating the world because he has seen the depravity of the sin of men and he is trying to make it new again. Now the major difference between that renewal in Noah's day and the renewal that is coming in when Christ returns is that in Noah's day, sin made it through that renewal. Sin was a passenger on Noah's ark because sin was a passenger in Noah's heart. And yet a day is coming when Christ returns where there will be a purification, where there will be a renewal and sin will not make it through. There will neither be sin nor the consequence of sin. All of creation will be purified. Now an important part of that new creation, that new heavens and new earth, is humanity. It's man, it's woman, it's soul and body. You see, what we believe the Bible teaches us is that when we die, if we die before Christ returns, what happens is that our body returns to the dust, returns to the, our, the dirt, but our soul goes to be with the Lord immediately. It's called the intermediary state between, Christ, between when we die and when Christ returns. And we base it on passages, again, like 2 Corinthians 5.8 that we read earlier. We would rather be away from the body, our soul away from the body, and at home with the Lord. Philippians 1, 23 through 24 says, My desire is to depart, to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So Paul is saying, I want to depart from the flesh so I can be with Christ. There is an urgency to him. There is a looking forward to dying so that he can now be with Jesus. And so we believe that for the Christian, when we die, our bodies go into the grave, but our souls go to be with Christ immediately in this intermediary state until Christ returns. And when Christ returns, our perfected soul will be reunited with a perfected body and we will live in the new heavens and the new earth. Paul tells us about this this resurrected body when Christ returns in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, for the This perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? You see, part of the newness of the new creation is that we will have new bodies, new souls. We will be invincible. Earlier this summer, I started training for a half marathon again. And I was doing really well for about three weeks. But one morning, I went out to go jog and I got a sharp pain in my knee. And so I walked for a little bit and then I started jog a little bit and the sharp pain returned. So I walked and jogged, the sharp pain returned again. And so I took a few weeks off, went to Yellowstone. <laughs> and when I came back, I thought, all right, I will try this again. I started jogging again and again, the pain started returning to my knee. And so I am publicly now declaring my retirement from running, okay, from half marathons at least. Andrew Luck knows what this is like, doesn't he? Same thing, exact same thing. You know, quarterback in his prime, 29 years old, if you, if you know sports law, he retired this week to the shock of everyone because our outer self is wasting away, right? 
Our bodies are very, very perishable. But there is a day coming, and I long for that day, where there will no, be no more achy knees or achy ankles or headaches. There will be no more doctors, no more hospitals, no more medicine. Because the body will become perfected forever and for always along with the rest of creation. And so the newness of the resurrected life includes a new heavens and a new earth, which includes a new you with a new soul and a new body that has been renewed and perfected. Now with that new creation also comes a new shalom. Shalom is a state of peace and harmony, wholeness and tranquility. You know, in the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth, creation was in a state of shalom. Man was in relationship of shalom with God and with one another. But when Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit, shalom was shattered. We live in a world of shattered shalom. Each of us could come up here and take a turn testifying to how shattered shalom is. We could testify to how shalom has been shattered in our marriages, how shalom has been shattered in our workplaces, how shalom has been shattered even in our own hearts as we struggle with anxiety and guilt and frustration and anger. Shalom has been shattered everywhere and we are so desperately searching for shalom. We search for shalom by going on vacation, by going for counseling, and by numerous other ways, by buying things that we shouldn't buy. We search for shalom everywhere, and yet always come up restless. And yet when Christ returns, he will bring complete shalom forever. Verse 1 of chapter 21 again. It says, then I saw a new heavens and a new earth. For the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. When he says the sea is no more, he's not saying that there will be no more beaches, no more boat rides, no more swimming, no more oceans. Sea is a word that is used like so much of Revelations, and that's what makes it tricky to understand exactly what it's saying at times. But sea is a, is a figurative word that represents chaos, danger, disorder, calamity. You see, when we go out on the ocean today, when we go out on the sea today, we ride these huge luxury uh, uh, cruise liners, right? And that time, I mean, they, they were on glorified toothpicks going through the sea. You see, even at the book, end of the book of Acts, the apostle Paul is shipwrecked. It, it happens. Or look at the book of Jonah when people are fearing for their lives. Or even when Jesus is in the boat with the disciples and they go out on the sea and they think they're going to die. The sea was a scary place to be. It was dangerous. It was chaotic. And so when John says the sea was no more, what he is saying is that in heaven, hear this very clearly, in heaven there will be no more scary Scary will cease to exist. There will be no more chaos, no more, no more disorder, no more anxiety, no more danger, no more calamity. Only shalom. Verse 4 continues and it says, He, God, will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Death is our final enemy and it will be thrown into the lake of fire. And so there will be no more funerals, no more graveyards, and no more morticians. 
A lot of people are going to be out of work in heaven. You know that? Praise God. Verse 4 continues and says, Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. All of our mourning, all of our pain is caused by our sin or by the sin of others. And because there is no more sin, not even an ability to sin in heaven, all of our suffering and all of our pain will go away and it will be complete shalom. You know, every Monday we have a staff meeting and we have a prayer board that we pull out at the end of staff meeting. We spend 15, 20 minutes praying for the needs of this church. We pray for marriages to be reconciled. We pray for people who've lost a loved one to be comforted by God. We pray for those with cancer to be healed. We pray for, I mean, a whole host of things. The elders have have another little prayer board of even more confidential things that we pray for. I have my own little prayer board of more confidential things to pray for. In ministry, you find out very quickly that we live in shattered shalom. That tragedy is sadly a common weekly occurrence. That major self-destructive sin is a common weekly occurrence. That heartache and brokenness is sadly a common weekly occurrence. But shalom is coming. And there will be no more prayer boards, only praise boards, because shalom is coming in full, complete, perfect, glorious peace in creation and with the creator. And so one of the wonderful things about home, about this resurrected life, is the newness of all things, the newness of creation, the newness of our bodies, and the newness of shalom. Secondly, and I got to speed up here a bit, is the nearness in the resurrected life. Verse 2 says, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. Again, you see the imagery here trying to communicate things that our brains just simply cannot fathom. It's talking about the bride being a city. Can you imagine a city wearing a wedding dress? This is the picture that that John has. And this is a picture of Christ's church, who is the bride of Christ. And she is beautiful. Look down at verse 9 through 11. It says, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Could you imagine yourself being the apostle John, that you're having this vision of the world that is to come and an angel comes to you and whisks you up away onto a mountain to show you a bride that is so beautiful that you can't not take your eyes off of her. And what is amazing about this bride is this bride is full of people like you and like me. Dirty people who have been washed by the blood of Jesus, who, is, who are beautiful in his sight. Pastor Scotty Smith tells a story of how uh, when he was a young pastor, he was performing a funeral, was, I'm sorry, not a funeral, a wedding, and it was one of the first weddings he ever performed, maybe the very first. And he was just a young guy, so he's nervous, not sure what to do. And this wedding was extraordinary. 
Not only did the groomsmen have tuxes on, all the men at the wedding had tuxes on. Could you imagine that? And the women had really nice dresses on. Uh, the, the mayor was there. And so this was an extravagant wedding. And he said everything was going very normal at first. You know, he and the groom came down and then the groomsmen brought down the bridesmaids and they separated and everything was going very well. But then the music stopped and the music changed. Everybody stood and, and for, that, for that moment that we wait for and they looked towards the back and the, the doors flung open and the bride came out. And he said when the bride came out, the groom started running towards her. <laughs> he just took off. And so Scotty says he wasn't sure what to do at that time. So he picked up, you know, his robe and he started running after him, grabbed him by the neck and dragged him back. But in that moment, he said the spirit ministered to him as he thought to himself, when have you ever seen a groom so looking forward to receiving his bride? Friends, when the doors of eternity open wide, as we appear as a bride, as a holy city, for our Savior groom, he will not turn his head away in disgust. In that moment, we will say, when have you ever seen a groom so looking forward to receiving his bride? Brothers and sisters, as much as you anticipate that day of going home and being with your Savior, he anticipates it more than you. And on that day, we will forevermore experience the presence of God and love of God and nearness of God like we never have before. Verse 3 said, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be their God. It is true that God is present with us right now, not only because God is omnipresent, but he is present through his spirit. And yet there is coming a day where God will be with us more intimately, more wonderfully than anything we've ever experienced on this earth. You see, right now we are engaged to be the Lord. And when a couple is engaged, there is a level of intimacy, a level of connection. But if you ask an engaged couple what they are looking forward to, to getting married, what they will tell you probably 95 times out of 100 is that they look forward to being closer together, to being near to one another, to not having to go home at night, but be able to enjoy each other throughout the night, in the morning, to be with one another emotionally, physically, relationally. You see, there is one type of nearness and engagement and a whole other level of nearness in marriage. Right now, we are engaged to be the Lord. But on that day, that wedding day, we will be wed to the Lord and we will have a nearness to him that we have never experienced before. Finally, I'm skipping some stuff here. The newness of resurrected life, the nearness in resurrected life. Finally, the necessity for resurrected life. As we look over shattered Salome and then we gaze over the fence at the resurrected life, the glory of it, our immediate question should be, how do I get there? How do I get into that glorious place of the new heavens and the new earth? And as we look at this passage, we see what disqualifies people. Look at verse 8 with me in chapter 21. He says, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars. Let's pause there for a second. Which of these applies to you? Which of you have ever been cowardly and not done what you know you should do? I know I am guilty. 
Have you ever been faithless to God? Have you ever done things you know God doesn't want you to do? I've done that. Done anything detestable? Anything that if it was made public, you would run in shame and hide in a cave? Ever murdered someone in your heart? Ever been sexually immoral? I know I have been. Have you ever been a sorcerer? I don't think I've done that, but I know some of you have. Idolaters and liars. He says, if you are these things, it disqualifies you from the new heavens and new earth. Now, we are in a whole lot of trouble, right? This verse continues, and it gets worse. He says, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Friends, none of us deserve the new heavens and the new earth. All of us deserve the punishment of hell for all eternity. But through Christ, there is a way to get to the new heavens and new earth. Look at 2011 with me. Again, I'm running late, but there's just so much good stuff here. He says, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it, talking about Jesus, from his presence, earth and sky fled away. Could you picture that? And no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books. Notice that it's plural. Books, more than one, plural. That's important, okay? Books. And books were opened. Then another book, that's singular, a single book. That's important as well, okay? There's a distinction between books, plural, books, singular, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, plural books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who was in it. Death and Hades, which is also known as Sheol, the temporary place of the dead who do not know Christ, gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done, as was found in the books, plural, right? Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And so the question is, how do we escape God's judgment? We know that we are liars, adulterers, murderers, and that we deserve to be thrown into the lake of fire. How do we escape that? And what this passage tells us is that we must be written in another book. Our name must be found in that singular book, the book of life. And how do we get in that book of life? Well, the answer is in who the book belongs to. Look, look if you would quickly, 2127. It says, but nothing unclean will enter a time on the new heavens and the new earth, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. But only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. See, friends, if you are a Christian, Jesus is not only our God and our groom. He is our Lamb, our Passover Lamb, our sacrificial Lamb who washes away all of our sin by his blood. Jesus is the one who not only took on our sin, but became sin and paid for in full upon the cross so that our deeds are erased from the multiple books and our name is written in the one book, the book of life. Ligon Duncan in his book, Fear Not, which I've referred to several times, writes this, and it just, it struck me so hard this week. He said, in my sinful moments, there is no doctrine that I want to be untrue more than the reality of hell. He says, I wish I could say that the doctrine is not true, but hell is the fairest reality in this world. If you want unfairness, that is called heaven by grace. Heaven by grace is the most unfair doctrine imaginable. 
Sinners deserving condemnation get heaven forever because the one who was without sin became sin for their reconciliation. That is unfair. But hell is the fairest doctrine in the world. Heaven, that is unfair. A sinner enjoying Christ for all eternity is unfair. Give me unfair. I will take heaven by grace. The next time someone says to you, life is unfair, you say, praise God. Because what do I deserve? I deserve to die right now and go to hell. The fact that I'm breathing is unlive. Uh, uh, the fact that I'm breathing and alive is unfair. It's a gift of God's grace. And so what is the necessity for resurrected life in the new heavens and the new earth? It is not your good works written in those many books that will only condemn you to hell. It is being written in the Lamb's book of life by the blood of the Lamb so that you may gain entrance for all eternity. Let me end with an illustration and a quote. When we moved to Green Bay in 2007, my oldest son Corbin was about one year old. And, and one of the things we loved about Green Bay was Bay Beach Amusement Park. And one of the things that Corbin loved and my other kids loved when they were born here as well is those little boat rides. You remember that, that little kiddie boat ride where the kids would get in that boat? I think there were four seats and there was a steering wheel that would just spin in circles because it really didn't control anything. And it was about the size of a kiddie pool and they would go around in circles. And the kids loved it. They would be smiling and laughing and clapping or they would be crying, but most of them would be smiling and laughing, right? And the parents would be there. They'd be taking pictures. They'd say, yay, way to go, you know? And they would enjoy that little toy boat, that little kitty boat at that time. In the past few years, as I mentioned, Trisha's parents have bought a lake house and her brother has brought a speedboat and we get to go out on that speedboat and we get to take the kids tubing and they bounce up in the air and they laugh so hard they're out of breath and they're bouncing around. Even this past week, they got to drive the boat a little bit. You know, to go back to those to those kiddie boats would almost be unimaginable. I mean, those kiddie boats were great, but we've experienced the greater thing. When we get to heaven, if you are in Christ, when we get to the new heavens and new earth, and we look back on the very, 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 very best parts of our life in this world, we will look at them and we will say, kiddie boat, kiddie boat. Because we have experienced the greater reality. That's how marvelous heaven is. Quote to end with. This is from the last book of the Chronicles of Narnia. Farewell to Shadowlands. The last battle in the last Chronicles of Narnia series. Just the very end of the book. The very end of the series. It says this. There was a real railway accident, said Aslan softly. Your father and mother and all you are, as you used to call it, in the Shadowlands, talking about this world, dead. He says, the term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is the morning, talking about the new heavens and new earth. And as he spoke, no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. As we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. And then I love this part. He says, but for them, 
it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Christian, fix your eyes on your heavenly home where all things are made new again, where we will be nearer to God than ever anything we could imagine because we have been written into the book of life by the blood of the lamb. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for the unfairness of heaven. Thank you that you have extended grace to people who deserve hell, that we might be your bride, your treasured bride, that we might have intimacy with you forever and for always in a place of shalom. Lord, we cannot wait for that day. We look forward to that day. May we set our hope on that day as a certain hope as we walk through the trials of this life. Help us, God, to keep our focus upon you and upon the heavens and the earth that we are bound for. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. The Lord Jesus.